Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sundays, please visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. We are uh, continuing in our series through the book of Revelation this morning. So if you have a Bible, um, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles all the way to the back of your Bibles, uh, Revelation 13, uh, verse 1. By way of reminder, we are finishing up our Bible in one year series, which we started last fall. If you were here a year ago, we started in the book of Genesis and worked our way through Scripture, and we are ending, ending this fall uh, in the book of Revelation at the very end of your Bibles. And we started our series in Revelation by spending an entire Sunday just talking about the genre of the book or what type of writing it is, concluding um, that the very confusing book of Revelation qualifies as three different genres or categories. Revolution, revolution, revelation is a prophecy which is meant to challenge and encourage God's people toward faithfulness under present trials. It is apocalyptic literature which peels back the curtain on this world, revealing the deeper spiritual reality behind the present and future circumstances they're facing. And it is a letter which is written to real people and understandable to its original audience. And this last part is the piece that we typically miss when we go to interpret the book of Revelation. There is an entire stream of interpretation that is wildly popular in modern America, which wants to read all of Revelation as purely future predictions that are coming to fruition in our day and time. Which means that Revelation would have meant almost nothing to its original audience, but is all starting to make a ton of sense to us. The problem with that school of thought, with that style of interpretation, is that it ignores the fact that Revelation is a letter that was understandable to its original audience. This morning, we are tackling some of the most famous or infamous imagery in the entire book. The beast, the mark of the beast, and the number of the beast, which is 666. But as we jump into this, we need to keep in mind that all of these would have meant something to the original audience that may not be obvious to us. We pick up in Revelation 13, verse 1. And remember, for those of you who were here last week, that chapter 12 was all about the meta-narrative, uh, the big picture story of cosmic warfare between God and Satan, in which a Satan has gone to the earth to wage war against God's people. 
Okay, that was chapter 12. This is what we read next. The dragon, or Satan, stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and each head had a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. Now, pause real quick. Spoiler alert. The beast in their time, place, and context is Caesar. And the horns and the heads on the beast represent rulers and powers, perhaps different Caesars in the line of Caesars, okay? Sorry to spoil that right up front. I wanted to wait till the end, but I can't help myself, okay? So the beast for them is Caesar. And I want us to read the rest of the passage through that lens. Let's pick up again. It says, The dragon, or Satan, gave the beast, or Caesar, his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast and who can wage war against it? The first emperor to carry out widespread persecution of Christians was Emperor Nero. He lit Rome on fire, burning large portions of it to the ground. And though many knew that he was behind it, he was insistent on blaming Christians for the fire and putting many to death. There were public executions. People were arrested. Horrible things were done to followers of Jesus purely because of their faith. Uh, Rumor has it that he would dip disciples of Jesus in oil and light them on fire and hang them in his courtyard. And and he would ride around on his chariot through his courtyard at night while these people were burning, yelling, light of the world. Nero, by many accounts, was insane. And in the end, he took his own life in an act of suicide. And what followed the suicide of Emperor Nero is called the Year of the Four Emperors, in which several people tried to set themselves up as the new Caesar, and one after the next, they were either executed or committed suicide. So during this time in Nero's suicide and the year after, uh, the entire Roman Empire, or the rule of Caesar, was in question. It seemed like the empire itself might disintegrate and break apart. The suicide of Emperor Nero, by most accounts, is the fatal wound which was inflicted to one of the heads or one of the Caesars in in the imagery of apocalyptic literature. Will the Roman Empire survive? Will the line of Caesars continue? The world wasn't sure. But somehow... 
after this turbulent year, the Flavian dynasty arose, uh, reestablishing and securing the empire, and life in the Roman Empire sort of went back to business as usual. The Roman Empire, it seemed, was invincible. So, this is verse 3. It said, One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed, or, or the Caesars had recovered. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast, Caesar and the Roman Empire. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast, asking who is like the beast and who can wage war against it. Apparently, no one. The beast, or Caesar, was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies. Um, You know from previous weeks, he called himself the Son of God and Savior, and, and on it goes and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened up its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It, or Caesar, was given, a, was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Caesar had authority over the entire known world. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. When you looked out your window in the first century, you saw a Roman Empire that had conquered the known world. It seemed unstoppable, undefeatable, and in order to maintain its vast empire, it insisted that everyone within the empire worshiped Caesar as the divine ruler of the world. That was how unity was to be maintained. And it was into this world that a small but growing number of disciples came with their gospel, or euangelion in Greek, which meant royal announcement. So their gospel, their royal announcement, was amazingly simple. It was three words. Jesus is Lord. But if Jesus was Lord, then it meant that Caesar was not. They were undermining the empire, and thus persecutions and executions resulted. Caesar claimed divine authority and demanded unquestioning allegiance from all the peoples they had conquered. Rome appeared to be Uh, the apex, the climax of all human culture and society, the fulfillment of human hope, the government, the architecture, the arts, the sciences, the, the mathematics, the sheer power and wealth and success was overwhelming. There had never been 
an empire like this in all of human history. Rome claimed to be the light. The world's true hope, bringing peace and prosperity to all who submitted to her. In fact, under Roman rule, at one point, uh, the world was united in 250 years of peace. Can you imagine? We'd be lucky to have two years of peace in today's world. Can you imagine? 200? Rome seemed to be the light, a force of peace and prosperity, blessed by the gods with the divine Caesar leading them forward. But as the curtain is pulled back on reality, the truth is revealed. Rome is not the light. Caesar is not divine. In fact, they are inspired and empowered by Satan himself. And Caesar is the beast out of the sea, the one who, from the vantage point of Asia Minor, where this letter is circulating, is uh, the beast who arose out of the sea, conquering them from as they headed east. But another beast is about to come on the scene, which in their world represented the emperor worship cult, which forced everyone to worship the emperor. We'll pick up in verse 11 if you have your Bibles open. Chapter 13, verse 11 says this, Then I saw a second beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, meaning it looked innocent. But it spoke like a dragon. It spoke the lies of Satan himself. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, or Caesar, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs or false miracles, even causing fire to come down from heaven in the full view of all the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So the emperor worship cult, the false prophet, in other places, the second beast is manufacturing false signs and telling everyone to worship Caesar. They set up images of Caesar and they made everyone worship those images. Okay, verse 15. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. All right, let's take a deep breath and recap for a second, okay? 
chapter 12 introduces Satan, the great enemy of God, who's warring against God and his people. Satan tries to devour or destroy Jesus as he comes into the world. It didn't work, but now he rages against the people of God, and he uses human actors in order to help accomplish his ends. So Satan raises up a beast out of the sea, this great line of Caesars who make blasphemous names for themselves, blasphemous titles, who claim to be divine, who conquer the known world and the people of God along with it. Caesar, we're told, actually derives his authority from Satan and shares in his earthly throne or the power that Satan has on earth. Caesar derives his authority from him. But then you've got a second beast which arises from the land. So in the context of Asia Asia Minor, the first beast comes over the sea to conquer them. The second one arises from the land or locally. So locally in Asia Minor, the emperor worship cult was huge. It arises locally. It acts locally, performing false miracles and forcing everyone to worship the beast or Caesar. Together, the three of them form an unholy trinity, which is being contrasted with God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit from the previous chapters. So as you're reading through the book of Revelation, you you get this stunning image of the creator God on the throne, of the lamb that was slain on the throne with him, of the fullness of the Holy Spirit in front of and around the throne. This is the Holy Trinity. It is is God. And you see creation and the people of God faithfully worshiping him as creator, as savior. But then as you move on, we're now introduced to the unholy Trinity. You have Satan and his two beasts, which are carrying out his will on the earth. They're demanding the allegiance that God alone deserves. Seducing the nations into false worship of human power and crushing and persecuting anyone who resists them. We're told that uh, the emperor worship cult forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now, this all sounds bizarre to us. I've read this dozens of times and had no idea what it was talking about. But remember that Revelation is steeped in the language and and imagery of the Old Testament. Okay, so in week one, we, we talked about this, but Revelation is 404 verses with, does anyone remember how many references there are to the Old Testament? 518. Amazing. With 518 references to the Old Testament. Okay? So when I read through the book of Revelation, I typically pick up on about three of those references. Okay? Which means the other 515 references to the Old Testament are going right over my head. And I think this is one of them. 
In the Old Testament, there was something called the Great Shema, which was this prayer of allegiance to God. The Great Shema, which is still hugely important in Judaism, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's this prayer of allegiance that many faithful Jewish people to this day will recite multiple times a day. They'll pause their day, they'll recenter around the Great Shema. As God is giving his people the Great Shema and the commandments and forming the Old Testament covenant with them, he says, hey, tie them, the commandments, as symbols or reminders on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Okay, this is all, you can go back and read this in the book of Deuteronomy. And so many devout Jewish people today, you can actually see them wearing many versions of the commands of God tied to their hands and tied to their foreheads in devout Jewish communities because they took this very literally. It says, tie them as symbols. Mark your forehead and mark your hands. What this is referring to or alluding to in Old Testament imagery is your thoughts and your actions. Your forehead is your thoughts. Your hands are your actions. Your, for, your, your thoughts and your actions should be steeped in the commandments of God. They should be rooted in allegiance to God. Pray this prayer of allegiance over and over again, recentering yourself on Him. Stay faithful to God alone in your thoughts and in your actions. Are you with me? Fast forward into Revelation 13, and what we have there is the anti-Shema. It's saying, unless you worship Caesar and give allegiance to him, you won't be able to buy or sell or participate in the economy, which in many cases was true. Often in the Roman Empire, before you could buy, sell, trade, enter a business contract, you had to swear allegiance to the emperor or acknowledge his divinity. In some cases, you had to burn incense to his image or even make a sacrifice to him. But what Revelation is saying is, hey, those who who do that, who acknowledge the emperor's divinity who worship the emperor as divine, you're actually giving your allegiance to Caesar. You're being marked by him as you worship him. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. If there is a more superstitious number in existence, I am not aware of it. I still remember when my wife and I first got married and we went to get our first joint bank account together. And right there in the bank account, 666. I just thought, are you serious? Like, don't they know that I work for a church? Like, this is this is crazy. But but there is there has been endless speculation over the last few decades, over the last few centuries, perhaps even over the last few millennia as to the significance of this. What, who is the beast? What is the mark of the beast? What is the number 666? 
Is it the Pope? You would be amazed how many people have arrived at that conclusion. Is it Hitler? Was it Stalin? Was it JFK, who received 666 votes in the Democratic National Convention, only to die of a head wound? Was it the European Union, who has 10 partner nations, which mirror the 10 horns and 10 crowns of the beast? Is it Ronald Wilson Reagan, who has six letters in each of his three names and lived in a house with the address 666? And you can buy literature, and you can go to conferences put on by people who are convinced they know exactly how to decode revelation for our modern age. People will gladly take your money to decode this for you. This is where revelation gets crazy, in my opinion. And honestly, all of the modern pandemonium has turned many of us off to this book. But we have to remember that Revelation is a letter and that its meaning was more clear to its original audience than it is to us. 666 has a double meaning in this case. In the most obvious sense, in apocalyptic literature, we talked about how numbers are actually more like adjectives. They represent something. So in apocalyptic literature, uh, the number seven represents completion, fullness, perfection, or sometimes even divinity. Whenever you see seven, think of those terms. Whenever you see six in apocalyptic literature, it represents incompleteness, a lack of perfection, or sometimes false divinity. So in its most basic sense, 666 represents total imperfection and what I would call mega false divinity, okay? It's driving a point home using the, the symbols and language of apocalyptic literature. So not only, <clears throat> well, are, are you with me so far? Does that numbering make sense? Caesar is the beast. He is totally imperfect. He, he is mega falsely divine. He is evil. But there's another layer here as well, which is again lost on us. In the first century, uh, they had something called, uh, I won't even be able to pronounce this, gematria? Gematria? I don't even know. They had this system, gematria. There was a system that assigned numeric values to letters. Okay? So, any name or series of letters on earth could be translated into a number. So 666 not only represents false divinity and total imperfection, but it is also a code for someone's name. And when you take the numeric value of, of Caesar Nero's name, 
and you add it up, what do you think it adds up to? Close. Six, six, six. Caesar Nero, according to that ancient system, you plug in the letters, you get out a numeric value. That was his numeric value. Ironically, this same number or value also corresponds to several other Caesars in the line, including Domitian, who was probably on the throne while Revelation was being written. But you put all of this together, the symbolic imagery, apocalyptic literature, the the gematria, the, the code to the name, and the meaning seems to be clear. Caesar has been empowered by Satan himself to set himself up as the false son of God and divine ruler of the world. And the imperial worship cult uh, props up this illusion. It props up his lies. It supports his propaganda, even using false miracles to do so. If you worship Caesar, if you fall for this illusion, as many Christians were tempted to do, then you were participating in this lie. You were participating in a false kingdom, and your hands and your forehead were marked by allegiance to Caesar. You received the mark of the beast as you gave your allegiance to him in your thoughts and in your actions. Instead, Revelation says, turn back, stay rooted in God, be marked by allegiance to the true God of the universe. Jesus is revealed to us in the book of Revelation, as the true and faithful witness, as the one who worshiped God alone and followed him unto death. John, who's writing the book of Revelation, has now been exiled to the island of Patmos, and he could have been put to death, again, for being a true and faithful witness. The terrors of Nero have passed. But the beast still rules from the throne. And the gospel, which is surprisingly political, must be proclaimed. And it says that the Lamb is on the throne and that Jesus is Lord, that he is king of the universe, that no human being and no human institution can take his place. And so the the call of Revelation, perhaps more than anything else, is to be a true and faithful witness to Jesus in the midst of the beast and the beastly kingdoms of this world. In the first century context, it seems clear to me that the beast is Caesar and that the false prophet or the second beast props up his lies and his power. But it's interesting that, that John didn't just write Caesar. He, why not just say Satan and Caesar and the imperial worship cult? Why not? Well, in part... 
It's because these realities repeat themselves. In fact, if you study the Old Testament, you'll see that Daniel, the prophet, uh, talked about the beast. And in his day, the beast was Babylon. And then, according to Daniel, the beast was Persia. And then, the beast was Greece. And now, in the time of John's writing Revelation, the beast is Rome. But as long as there is a Satan and cosmic warfare, there will be beasts as well. Human actors and human empires that set themselves up in opposition to the living God. Eugene Boring says it this way. He says, The beast is not merely Rome. It is the inhuman, anti-human arrogance of empire, which has come to expression in Rome, but not only there. All propaganda that entices humanity to idolize human empire is an expression of this beastly power that wants to appear lamb-like. The beast is more than Rome. In fact... It is in the very nature of human empires to become beastly. Human institutions have this insane bent toward deifying themselves and claiming to be divine or claiming to carry out the will of God. And beastly human empires will ask for unqualified allegiance and a compromise of your faith in order to achieve their ends. I think there are obvious examples of this. I think of a current situation in North Korea uh, where, where people are not allowed to leave, where they're forced to worship their political ruler as divine, and, and Christians are seen as a threat to that. They're put to death. I think of the many nations around the world in which a unity of culture is thought is sought through adherence to, to Islam or Hinduism or others. And Christians, again, by remaining faithful to Jesus, are seen as a threat to that unity. And they're put to death for their resistance. But I think it goes beyond that. I think there's something in this imagery of the beast that is inherent in every human empire. Even a healthy critique of American culture will reveal the ways in which we deify our country, uh, in in which wholehearted and unquestioning allegiance is desired. We can look around our own country and see the ways in which it is easier to advance and participate in the economy if you set aside your faith and your faithful witness. If we aren't careful, uh, we too uh, can allow ourselves uh, to to fall into, to to, uh, fall into the trap, the snare of empire as a compromise to our faith. We can allow our allegiance to a country or even this country to trump our faith. Poor choice of words. Uh, 
I'm sorry. Uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't saying anything by that. I just... But the self-interested motives of a strong America, and now it's really sounding like I set this up. I, I didn't. The self-interested motives of a strong America and a strong economy will eventually, at some point, conflict or clash with the Lamb and his inbreaking kingdom. At, at some point, our unquestioning allegiance to country and our unquestioning allegiance to the Lamb will come to a crossroads. There, there will be tension between the two. There will be conflict. And so Revelation forces us to ask, are your thoughts and actions, are your hands and your forehead marked more by allegiance to America or whatever country you live in or the Lamb on the throne? Because they're not the same thing. In fact, there will be times and places where they sharply conflict with one another. The national interest and the lamb's interest are two very different things. If we worship the national economy and blindly do whatever is necessary to advance that economy, we will find ourselves at odds with the lamb on the throne and the advance of his kingdom. Because the two eventually will be at odds. And I love this country. I really do. I served in the military. I was willing to give my life uh, to to protect the people that live in this country. Uh, I actually love the American spirit and many of the American values. I've traveled all over the world and enjoyed the countries that I've been, but, but I do think there, there's something, something beautiful that we have here. And so what I'm saying is, is not a, a slam on America, but as much as I love the country that we live in, I also recognize that our country, like all human empires, has a dark side. It is imperfect It is inherently self-centered. And at some point, or at many points, it will be at odds with the Lamb on the throne. Revelation is a call, no matter which country you live in, Revelation is a call to resistance. It is a powerful reminder that your allegiance belongs to no nation or human being or human system. Your primary allegiance belongs to the Lamb on the throne. And your primary citizenship is among the people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation who follow the Lamb on the throne. Our country, great as it is, is not divine. The human institutions that run it are not divine. 
No human is worthy of your unqualified allegiance. There is only one, the Lamb upon the throne. And so we are called, along with the people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, to center our worship around him. Not around self, not around nation or empire, but around the lamb who was slain. Revelation poses this challenge to us. What will you do when the empires of the earth are at odds with the lamb on the throne? Will you resist them in faithful witness? Will you resist them to the death? Let's pray.